The Akkad and Coco Report, episode 126. Welcome to the Akkad and Coco Report, the podcast dedicated to making sense of healthcare. From policy to economics, from evidence-based medicine to ethics, join us as Drs. Michelle Akkad and Anish Coca diagnose and treat the latest epidemic of healthcare absurdities. Welcome to this most recent episode of the Akkad and Coco Report. Today, we are super lucky to have um, Dr. Eric Wein- Weinhandel here. Um, he's here to talk about uh, a really interesting retraction that uh, he was a part of. Um, Eric, tell, tell, um, tell us a little bit about uh, yourself first. Ah, sure. So, uh, Eric Weinhandel, I have my epidemiologist. Uh, my PhD is in epidemiology, and then I have a master's degree in biostatistics from beforehand. Um, I'd gone through both of those programs at the University of Minnesota in the School of Public Health. Um, I'm a lifelong Minnesotan, as you can tell pretty readily from my accent. Um, and uh, I guess that as far as clinical applications go, um, the twist on me is that I was a math major as an undergraduate. Between my junior and senior years of college, I, I did an internship in a, in a research group that was led by a nephrologist. So it was quantitative database-driven research, not clinical research or lab-based. And so that was my first introduction to the field of end-stage real disease dialysis. Really had minimal biology training as an undergrad. Um, so I fell into the field completely by accident, and it has become my uh, adult career. So, um, you know, I would say that over time, particularly as the field has expanded to uh, more epi research in pre-dialysis, chronic kidney disease, and then AKI more recently in the last 10 years, um, certainly the field has expanded. My topics have expanded. I would say that 80% of the work I do is in dialysis. And then, um, you know, maybe 10% in transplant epi and another 10% in, in late stage chronic kidney disease. Fascinating. And how did you, um, so, so walk me through after you finished your, um, uh, your, your, your doctorate. So you have a doctorate mm-hmm. in, in, in epi- epidemiology. So, yeah, right? that's right. Um, so after you finished that, wh- what did you do next? So as it happened, mostly by coincidence, um, I had been working at a research group, the, the same one that I just described that said Hennepin County Medical Center in Minneapolis, it's a large safety net hospital in downtown Minneapolis, operated by the county. Um, research group was there, and I finished my PhD around 2015. I had three kids during the time, my wife and I, three kids during my PhD, so it took a little bit longer to get the dissertation done than a normal human being would, <laughs> but um, so, so goes. Um, by the time I got my degree done, I had actually been working for about five and a half years with a small company based in Massachusetts um, that was acting as a research sponsor, uh, commercially sponsored research, and the company was called Next Stage Medical. Um, Next Stage was created in the early 2000s, and in 2004, um, had FDA clearance for a home hemodialysis machine. That's called the Next Stage System 1, a uh, small machine. Um, and it's novel relative to other hemodialysis equipment because it plugs into a regular outlet in your home um, rather than sort of outlet like a washing machine or a dryer plugs into. Um, and then in addition, it um, takes tap water as a supply, uses the ionization process rather than a reverse osmosis system to purify the water and then mixes it with a solution to create dialysate. So, you know, at the time of like 2003, home hemodialysis had basically bottomed out in the United States. Um, There were all of about 1,500 patients left doing the modality. 
um, which at that time would amount to well, well under 1% of the population on dialysis. Um, you know, next stage comes along in 2004 and the therapy begins to grow. And so 2015, I decided I was going to jump the ship. Um, I had become pretty passionate about home hemodialysis as a therapy um, and, and the clinical advantages it offers patients and their families. And I thought, you know, I'm going to, this is a little non-traditional to finish your PhD and then go from a research group to industry, but I thought I'll do it. Um, it gave me an opportunity to really focus on the therapy and supporting and building the evidence base around it. Um, so that's where I was between 2015, 2019. Um, now, in the course of all of this, um, Fresenius Medical Care, which is a large international provider of dialysis products and services, actually had reached an agreement with NextH in 2017 to merge. It's called a merger. Of course, Fresenius is giant and NextH is very small. So <laughs> it's a merger in principle. Um, and then uh, that took quite a while. Um, and that was a classic vertical merger. Um, FTC took about 18 months to actually review. And when it all came down to it, the commissioners voted three to two to approve the merger. Um, and so it cleared in February 2020. And then for the last year there, between, um, between March and the very end of April of this year, I worked at Fresenius Medical Care in their medical office doing uh, epi and biostat work. Um, but uh, by virtue of Minnesota residency, four kids, a lot of things going on in my life, I decided to actually make Reese and switch back to the hospital in Minneapolis. So that's where I'm at the last few weeks. Ah, so really, really, really interesting. So what, you know, you're, you know, you came up because of this paper in JAMA. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a paper that looked at the uh, relationship between uh, dialysis, dialysis facility ownership and access to kidney transplantation. Um, the, I remember the initial uh, study coming out because it was kind of a little bit of a whack at, yep. at, you know, uh, at, 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 my employer at the time, <laughs> among others. <laughs> right, 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 exactly. So <laughs> the idea was that if you were a private, you know, if you were a private, uh, uh group that was doing dialysis, that you were perhaps less likely to, uh, get folks or move folks along to, Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a transplant because, you know, then once the patient's gone, uh, you know, you, they've kind of lost business. So it's somewhat of a provocative um, hypothesis. And, uh, yeah. and, and so how did, how did the, can you, can you walk us through the original paper and? Oh, sure. So yeah, the paper was published uh, around September 10th or so last year. Um, I had no idea that it was coming. Uh, certainly wasn't part of the review process, nor I had heard any chatter in the community about such a paper coming. Um, so, you know, I read it and, it, you know, at first glance, the first time you read a paper, you sort of try and integrate on the fly, like how does this dovetail with existing evidence? And, and definitely there's been a lot of observational studies done over the last, you know, 15, 20 years of for-profit versus not-for-profit dialysis facilities and how that profit status correlates with any number of outcomes. Um, definitely death and hospitalization have been tracked. Um, some of this more, you know, prototypical clinical quality measures analysis have been tracked. Um, and then transplanted. Um, transplant has not been received as much attention in this domain. There was a paper that was published maybe five, four or five years ago uh, that had looked at waitlisting, uh, waitlist registration as an outcome. And it had suggested that there was potentially about 10 to 15% lower rate of waitlisting in patients dialyzing in for-profit facilities. So there certainly was there certainly was a precedent in the literature for the notion of an association that would be unfavorable to for-profit facilities. Um, I don't recall any 
papers that have looked at kidney transplant incidence itself, um, and certainly none that had distinguished between living and deceased donor donation. Um, but, you know, so I read the paper, and of course, it, the, the association was in the same direction. So you think, all right, this is possible. And then I, and then I looked back at it. It was later that evening. Um, and I thought, you know, the part that's odd about this paper is, is the two things. One is that the, the associations, the hazard ratios, um, were really large. Um, we're talking about 50, 60, 70 percent lower uh, rates of, of waitlisting and transplantation in for-profit facilities. And, you know, when you get to associations that big, it starts to raise the question of just face validity is a little bit dubious here. I mean, how can we have associations quite that large? It, it would, it's the sort of thing that if it were true, somebody would have noticed it without doing a study. Um, and, and then the second thing was just that when you take a look at the very first table and figure in the paper, um, and in particular the flow chart, um, as well as the event counts, and by event counts, I'm specifically referring to the number of patients out of the whole cohort that were actually waitlisted, uh, and the total number of people who received a transplant during follow-up. The numbers seemed really low, implausibly low. So this study cohort had included all incident dialysis patients in the United States, um, between 2000 and 2015, if I recall right. Sometimes I forget if it's 15 or 16, but anyway, 15 to 16 years of incident patients. Uh, number of new dialysis starts in the country has increased over time, but you know it's been running about 120,000, 125,000 per year for the last number of years. So you know, you're dealing with a lot of patients, and, and we all know what the transplant rate is in the dialysis population. It's about four events per 100 patient years. So it's not too difficult to ballpark um, what the event count should be, and so when you see a number that doesn't match up, you think, well, where did the events go? And the associations are a little too big uh, to be believable. So something's going on here. So that's essentially what started the journey, a suspicion that something was awry. So you, you mentioned, it's interesting, you mentioned initially that it, it was plausible to you that this could be the case because, you know, it's been, it's been, it's been mm -hmm. reported. Um, uh, why, why do you think that is? Why is there this? Yeah, so, so the thing about thinking about profit status in dialysis facilities is that it has evolved. And so, you know, I, I'm going to reflexively talk about where we're at in, say, the 2010s. Um, my knowledge of 2000 and 2005 has faded a little bit. But over time, um, for-profit facilities have grown as a percentage of all the pie, and not-for-profit facilities have diminished. Um, today, where we're at, we're probably at about 85 to 90% of dialysis facilities are for profit. Okay, so that only leaves 10 to 15% that are not for profit. And you have to think about where, who those characters are then that are in that not for profit piece still. All right, there's a, a relatively sizable chain called DCI, it's Dialysis Clinic Incorporated. Um, they're based in Tennessee and they have a pretty good presence around the southeast and the midsection of the country. It's about 250 out of the nation's 7,000 dialysis facilities. So that by itself is the single biggest piece. Second biggest piece is a smaller chain called Satellite Healthcare that's based in California. Heavy presence in Northern California uh, along with the smaller presence in Southern California. That's important to note because California has a very different transplant profile than other states. A lot of wait listing, pretty high transplant rate. Um, difficult to adjust for when you start doing covariate adjustments. It's just geographically favorable. Um, and then after that, it, it really fragments into a lot of really small chains. But in particular, what's left in that, in that leftover piece beyond DCI and satellite is what are called hospital-based dialysis facilities. 
And those are dialysis facilities that truly are outpatient um, facilities, just like a Fresenius or DVD unit, but they're operated by hospital networks. And the important thing, which really I think fits my hypothesis at least, is that those hospital-based dialysis facilities have the ability to integrate the nephrology care that happens on the dialysis silo and the nephrology care that happens in the transplant silo because everybody's on the same page. It's not like the difference between outpatient dialysis in a company like Fresenius or DeVita that's outside of a hospital campus and then the patient has to go to a transplant center in a hospital to work out for a transplant and receive care. So you're integrating care better and I think that that's probably a big chunk of why not-for-profit facilities probably appear to have higher transplant rates. I see, I see. So it's more the synergy that exists, mm -hmm. perhaps. In, That's my hypothesis. Right, yeah. right, right. Um, I'll point out that this whole not-for-profit profit association is a little murky because, you know, at least to me or to, to many folks, it, it's a little... Um, Shall we say? What's a polite way of saying it? Uh, certainly, you know, not for not, not for large not for profit hospitals certainly seem yeah. to act uh, quite like uh, you know for profit. I I but, uh, grew up I grew up in southern Minnesota, uh, just a few miles from the Mayo Clinic. Um, I've watched it grow from a, a tiny you know pretty small right. hospital, so to speak, in Rochester. When I was a young kid, everybody in the area went to it for acute care. Um, to this huge international operation. And, you know, it generates an incredible amount of operating income. It's not to say that there's anything, that I have anything negative to say about the institution, but it's not for profit. At the same time, it literally has operating income from real estate trusts. I mean, right. it's a murky right. classification. <laughs> right, 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 right. So, so again, you, you pointed out, just coming back to the paper and what you noticed, you, know, you, you did notice the hazard ratios, correct? Mm -hmm. um, but but the bigger thing you said you noticed were the were the events, and again, this is why um, you know when you it's so hard when you critically analyze papers. Um, mm -hmm. It's really really hard for folks that are that don't have you know domain expertise to to analyze it, right? And so it to is. me, I mean, to me, I, mean, I don't I don't think I mean I'm sure I, I don't know if I even read the paper, but even if I had read the paper initially originally when it came out, none of this would have uh, jumped out at me. So. That yeah. you noticed, you noticed the big thing you noticed was the number of events, right? Yeah. Yep. Uh, so how many, and specifically, it was the uh, um, number of uh, 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 patients in 17 years, right? Is that is that? Yeah. No, basically, that's right. So everybody was followed from their first day of dialysis. There were a few exclusion criteria. One of the notable ones was that um, if you were actually waitlist before starting dialysis. Um, you weren't part of this cohort. So these were basically patients who were completely naive to the transplant registration workup process. Um, they start dialysis and they're being followed until um, first event is either waitlisting or in the case of say a person who receives a living donation, they may not be waitlisted previously. Um, but, but that notion of counting time until initial waitlisting um, that's a number that, you know, when you think about percentage of patients who get there, um, denominator in this study after the exclusion criteria were applied was something like 1.5 million patients. That should generate around 250,000 initial wait lists um, over the course of this follow-up period. Um, and I believe that the uh, study itself recorded in one of its tables around 120,000 rather than 230 to 250,000. So a pretty big deviation from what I would have expected. 
Yeah. So, right. So there were um, 1.9 million incident uh, uh, end-stage kidney disease patients in 17 years. Um, they excluded um, 250,000 patients for lack of dialysis facility information, which was, you know, a flaw in the study, but that is yeah. what it is. So that leaves, that's what you're saying, one and a half million dialysis patients uh, with no history of being waitlisted. They then kind of followed these folks out and that generates uh, what they said was 121,000 first waitlist events, correct? Mm -hmm. And right. um, you know, 23,000 transplants out of that group, 42,000 deceased donor transplants. Sorry, 23,000 living donor transplants, 49,000 deceased yep. donor transplants. And, and these counts, yep. so a guy like you that's been buried in this stuff and has been doing this for you know, a decade, right? Um, yep. You were like, whoa, this is, this is vastly... <laughs> Uh, abnormal. So what? Yeah. So what, walk us through from there. So what? 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 what right. well, so well, you started to say that you know you sh you would expect far fewer. Oh, sorry, far more waitlist events. You know that more. there are far more waitlist events for that amount of time. So go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. So so the the, the study materials are something called the United States Renal Data System uh, database. It's uh, USRDS is the acronym. This is a contract um, through the NIDDK, and for the sake of disclosure, it's a contract that my current employer actually holds. Um, so essentially, the USRDS is a registry um, of end-stage renal disease in the United States. Um, many high-income countries have registries. Many middle-income countries have registries. Um, you know, Canada has one. Australia, New Zealand has one. England has one. There is a um, sort of loose connection of European registries that form a pan continental registry as well. Anyway, this registry has existed in the United States since the late 1980s. Um, its backbone is basically Medicare data. Um, you know, so to give you a quick aside, um, you know, if a patient presents with end-stage renal disease, they are entitled to Medicare regardless of age. They do have to satisfy the uh, working quarters criterion, uh, 20 working quarters, but otherwise they're entitled to Medicare. Now, some people come in with commercial insurance and increasingly large share come in with Medicare Advantage. Um, but if you don't come in with anything, um, there are some there are some different pathways and delays to the point that you get Medicare for the first day, but basically the first day of the fourth calendar month, you're guaranteed to be in. Um, so Medicare has uh, an excellent count of the denominator of registered ESRD cases. They know who has ESRD and they know who's alive and they know death notifications forms um, because they mandate those for all patients too, regardless of whether they're Medicare enrolled or not. So this USRDS database basically is this uh, sort of backbone of the registry. Um, there are claims data from fee-for-service involved. There are some newer instruments. Uh, one's called Crown Web, which is basically a uh, it's a monthly collection of, of biochemical data and other treatment parameters that all dialysis providers must report for all patients, regardless of payer. Um, and then in addition, the registry itself actually borrows data from the solid organ transplant registry, which is an entirely different program because that's one is administered by HRSA rather than NIH and UDK. Um, but that registry called the SRTR, Scientific Registry of Transplant Recipients, collects data on all transplant waitlisting events, transplant events, graft failure events. And so all of those data are actually, for kidney transplant events, transferred over to USRDS and built into the registry as well. Um, so that database, anyone can access. It's actually free of charge. Uh, you have to have an IRB approval, um, complete a data use agreement, and you can um, request uh, any number of data sets. 
Um, I happen to have several DUAs active with USRGS data. And so I thought, you know, I've got a suspicion that this study isn't quite right. Um, let's try it out. I, so I just went right into the data and, you know, tried to replicate the basic parts of it. Now, you know, working to my advantage, if you look closely at the tables in the paper, is that when they actually applied risk adjustment um, and moved from crude models to, you know, richly adjusted models, the hazard ratios didn't really change that much. So I thought to myself, well, that kind of eliminates the need for me to have to go through the really arduous work, which would be constructing all the covariates. All I have to do is basically build the cohort, identify the time to event variables, and see what kind of associations I get. And are my crude numbers going to match theirs or not? I don't need to worry too much about doing risk adjustment. Mm -hmm. So... I, that's that's where it started. And um, I mean, long story short, within about 48, 72 hours, I don't know, um, I, it was pretty clear that I wasn't getting the same numbers. I wasn't getting the same numbers for events, and I definitely wasn't getting the same number for the hazard ratios. So, you know, my, my suspicions see. at this point are confirmed. <laughs> so, uh, so it, you know, it makes, you know, again, their numbers were 121,000 of 1. Mm -hmm. 1.5 million would be waitlisted. Um, most initial waitlisting activity occurs during those first two years uh, yeah, of, uh, after dialysis initiation, and uh, and you know you know from UNOS data that between 2000 and 2016, the U.S. had you know 14 to 19,000 kidney transplants per year, um, and there's some second and third kidney transplants as well. Mm -hmm. um, but during that 17-year period of time there were 280,000 transplants, right? Right, right. The study uh, only had, you know, 70,000 uh, mm -hmm. transplants. And so, uh, so that, so when you went about, you know, uh, when you went about trying to recreate that, uh, th this is when you came up with some, some very, very different, uh, uh, you know, event rates. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's right. The, um, I mean, it definitely that gap between 280 and 70, you know, there are some, there are some real reasons for that that are totally legitimate. I mean, the 280 comes from all the transplants that occurred within the era. The study includes only the patients between 2000 and 2016 who actually initiated dialysis. So you can imagine you could have a patient who receives transplant in 2004, they actually initiated dialysis in 1996. So that transplant wouldn't ever have been a part of this cohort. So, you know, the gap between 280 and 70,000 is, is not so much it's not exclusively due to any kind of study errors or any questions about the study. It's more so a function of the design, but right. it definitely is the case that, you know, if you replicate the denominator as constructed in this study, you should be seeing somewhere in the neighborhood of about, I think I recall 135, 140,000 transplants um, rather than the 70,000 that were in the study. Right. Exactly. So, so what you did when you, when you did this September 11th, <clears throat> you got out of the 1.7 million, you know, you, you, using the same time period basically not the mm -hmm. same not the same data set but the same time period you got 1.7 million patients you got uh, of those 1.7 million patients on who were dialysis patients that generated for you 250,000 initial waitlist events uh, mm -hmm. as compared to what they got which was 121,000 waitlist events right yep and yep. and uh, and as you said 130,000 total uh, transplants, whereas they got <laughs> 70,000 yeah. total transplants. Yeah. So numbers that are wildly, wildly different. Pretty um, different. Yeah. Um, so, so you've now, so you're pretty convinced now because now you've kind of proved 
what, what seemed to be intuitively fairly obvious to you when you looked at it, that yeah. the numbers were off by a good bit. Um, can, can, I, can, I, can we take a brief segue here before we sure. go on in terms of what happened next? Um, uh, now, this is a peer-reviewed paper in JAMA. Mm-hmm. Um, what, you know, is this, isn't this the exact thing that peer review is for to catch things like this? <laughs> yeah. So, um, there are different ways to look at this. Um, I, I think that there is a political angle and I think that, you know, anybody would be naive if they denied that, you know, definitely the, um, the segment of the Dallas provision industry, uh, that is for profit is definitely open, uh, for, for criticism. Um, you know, both Davida and Fresenius, as well as many other smaller providers have been involved in litigation with the federal government at various points. Um, you know, I would certainly characterize the Dallas population as socioeconomically relatively deprived and low. And, and so it's uh, an area in which you worry about the vulnerability of the patient population for sure. Um, so when you see a result like this, I, I'm, I'm just surmising. If you see a result like this and you're at a journal, you're thinking, wow, this is really a big story. And so, you know, I don't know how that influences the rigor of a review, but there is a certain confirmation bias that probably goes with a result like this when you first see it. Um, now, setting that aside, um, then you get into scientific topics. Um, it is a it's a giant registry. And it's a registry that is capable of producing all sorts of wildly confounded results. Um, it's capable of leading you completely astray if you don't know what you're doing. It's got a lot of complexity. It's evolved over time. Um, you know, I think the challenge is, is that I don't know any way around this. When you're inviting reviewers to this paper, a paper like this that uses USRDS data, that uses Medicare claims, I think you have to invite reviewers who know the data sets. Um, and I don't know if that happened or not. My right. suspicion is that it didn't. But even if you invite someone who, say, has a publication or two, even in high-impact nephrology journals that used the same data set, used USRDS, it doesn't necessarily guarantee that they would be able to diagnose this level of detail. I mean, I worked at the office that held the USRDS coordinating center contract between 2000 and 2014. So I was part of building the registry database year after year, not just an end user of it. Right. Boy, boy. Yeah. It, it, we'll, yeah. We'll, we'll come back to this, but really, really outstanding um, that, that you were able to pick it up. Uh, uh, but, and, but so coming back, what did you, so you found this and you're now you're pretty convinced that there's a significant error. What did you do next? All right. Well, I mean, to make this clear, you know, I read the paper and, and I went on this little journey on my own. I know it would be very uh, intuitive to assume that my employer wanted me to do this. Uh, paper obviously wasn't friendly to uh, the interests of any for-profit Dallas provider, but honestly, my employer really had very little idea uh, other than, you know, me saying that I'm taking a look at this paper and doing the analysis. It wasn't like anybody commanded me to do this. Um, but nonetheless, I've got an inherent conflict of interest. I'm employed by a for-profit Dallas provider, and I've got this result, and I think it's wrong. Um, my interest is in setting the scientific record straight, correcting an error if there is one. Um, I can't say that I was particularly invested in what it meant for corporate reputations and all that kind of stuff, but you knew that if I just 
throw this out there to the authors, to the journal, it's pretty easy to dismiss me. I mean, I was on this side too before I worked at Next Stage in Fresenius. And if an industry representative approached me and said, your study is all messed up, I'd be like, well, okay then. That's what I expect you to say. Um, so it was challenging. Um, you know, I certainly had plenty of uh, mentors who had been around. Uh, I, the nephro one of the nephrologists that, you know, is largely responsible for training me. Um, you know, I met him when I was 21, you know, he gives me tons of good advice. Um, and so, you know, I asked around and I said, well, you know, you could write a letter to the editor. That'd be the traditional thing to do. But JAMA's letter to the editor policy says no unpublished data. So you're boxed in a little bit because you can't put speculative data in from your own little toy analysis into a letter to the editor. Uh. Um, so I knew that one of the associate editors of JAMA is a nephrologist. And so, and I've got a relationship with him um, from, from past collaborations. And so I thought, well, I'll send him an email. And, and I asked him, when I sent him the initial email, I said, you know, I've got a conflict of interest, but I've looked at these data and I've done my own analysis and I'm pretty confident that these are flawed. And I had sent him a very, very preliminary slide deck of what I had, uh, what I had thought, what I generated from the analysis and said, you know what, what do you think I should do? in my position. And I said, I'm asking you as a person who, you know, sure, you're an associate editor, but I'm not asking you your official capacity as an associate editor. I just want your perspective on how to proceed. And so he responded to me and, you know, said, you know, I think that you should reach out to the authors. Um, they're friendly people. Um, and, you know, they'd, be, they'd probably be happy to talk to you and, and listen to what you've discovered. And, um, I thought, okay, that's fine. I actually knew some of the co-authors on the paper. The, um, the senior author on the paper is a person that I certainly have mutual acquaintances with, you know, other epidemiologists and ESRD transplant stuff. We certainly have as common friends. I didn't know her particularly well, um, but I knew some of the middle authors on the paper from other kinds of projects and collaborations. Um, so anyway, um, I sat on that advice for a few days, didn't do anything. And then this associate editor, JAMA, emailed me several days later and he says, you know, I reached out to the authors myself and I told them that you'd like to talk to them. And so they'd be happy to talk to you, send her an email um, and, and then see what happens. And so I did that. I followed through um, total cold call, but essentially wrote a long email to the senior author of the paper, introduced myself, um, disclosed my inherent conflict of interest and, and laid out where I thought, um, I laid out the fact that there was a discrepancy. You know, at this point, it's pretty difficult for me to understand what the discrepancy, like why the discrepancy has existed. I mean, you can see that the numbers are not the same, but I'm not at the point yet in this first email where I've diagnosed what's going on. So, so, so they, so you, so you emailed them and, and, and the response you got was, uh, uh, was, was what? Well, um, you know, positive. I mean, super friendly. And, and I give yeah. credit to the senior author. She's the only person that I corresponded with uh, during okay. the course of all of this, um, which went on for three, four weeks. She was very friendly, very gracious. Um, and so I give her all the credit. And I'm sure, in hindsight, this was a challenging situation to manage. Um, but, you know, naturally, like any human being, I think you're going to want to, you know, you're going to want to resort to defend your work. And I, and I think it's fair to say that she felt confident in her results initially. 
um, had a team of people who had, you know, developed code, checked code, checked numbers over and over. I mean, a lot of times you worry about, did you transcribe numbers from your statistical software over to the paper correctly? Like that's the error rather than, you know, the code or, or data processing. So, um, you know, we, we recognized that we had different numbers and she was resolved to trying to understand why the numbers were different, um, you know, without initially, of course, naturally admitting that, of course, that there is necessarily a problem. She wouldn't have reason to believe that there is one at that point. Could be that I made a mistake. It's interesting um, because it, it doesn't take, it doesn't take that much to figure out that the, I mean, it doesn't take that much to figure out that the, the number of events are vastly off, right? I mean, that, that doesn't take crunching code to figure out where the mistake is. Right. Clearly up front, the error that, I mean, that is pretty easy to see is that there's way more transplants happening over that time course. Yeah. Right. Um, but anyhow, uh, so, but, but, but again, this, this, gets, with back, you and, yeah. this gets back to your, this gets back to your point about, end users of databases, right? Um, mm -hmm. and, and folks that are kind of, you know, have, have deep knowledge of the actual data. Uh, folks that are, that are uh, so, you know, to her, or, you know, the senior author on a paper in, in, in JAMA and to that team, you know, that's, that's what the, that's what, she, she had this database. She crunched yeah. the numbers. She had this hypothesis, crunched the numbers, came out with a bunch of stuff. And to her, none of that seems... None of that seems seems uh, abnormal. Um, so right. she so, but anyway, uh, you know, she, so regardless, she feels confident that that you know, hey, you know, I don't know why this discrepancy is happening. She still thinks mm -hmm. maybe it's something you did. You're you're some you're some uh, yeah. you know an epidemiologist that works for a for profit, um, and uh, and you know who knows you're some random epidemiologist. Uh, you know, yeah, totally. Maybe, maybe you made maybe you made the mistake. So the next thing that happens is uh, she uh, puts this. Um, uh, puts her code up on on GitHub. Yeah, she had said right? she was going to do that, um, and, I, okay. and I'm sure she was planning on doing it. Yeah. Now, nature of I was pretty obsessed with this little uh, problem at this yeah. point in time. So she tells me that she's going to put the code on GitHub. Um, I waited a few days, and uh, I and I thought, you know, I hadn't received an email, and so I thought oh, GitHub is searchable. It's basically all available to the public unless you lock stuff down that you upload to the website yourself. Um, I said. I should be able to figure this out. How many people are uploading code that somehow is analyzing kidney transplants and USRDS? And so sure enough, I was actually, uh, I dropped my kids off at church and I was sitting there in the parking lot with my computer on Wednesday night. And I, and within about 10, 15 minutes, I had found the code. Um, so. So she had, she had, they had uploaded the code. They had uploaded the code or they had okay. it there all along. And, and maybe it was just that they hadn't informed me yet, but. And uh, I, I found it. And so I okay. started taking a look at it. Um, and, you know, anytime you look at anybody else's code, um, it's always challenging to work through. No matter how clean or well-documented it is, it still is somebody else's logic. And so you got to fight through it. Now, the data processing was in SAS. Um, SAS is a, the, the USRDS data sets are distributed in SAS data set format. Um, so that's the starting point for most people. Um, so it was easy to understand the logic of the code. Um, but you know, at this point, I'm still kind of flying blind, not quite sure where the error has occurred. Um, you know, I don't necessarily have a sense of like, is it early on in data processing cohort construction? Is it later on when you get to the time to event data variable construction? Or is it the Cox model itself? Um, so I'm kind of open-minded at this point and sort of parsing all the pieces at the same time. Um, now, 
it was pretty clear to me after not too long that the statistical modeling wasn't the issue. Um, I, I didn't need to spend any time looking at that stuff. It wasn't like there was a zero one variable that was flipped or anything. Um, but then I started looking very early on at the construction of the cohorts, and that's kind of where my curiosity got peaked. Now, one of the things I didn't mention earlier is that that's kind of odd about the, the study results in JAMA is that the mix of for-profit to not-for-profit um, patients um, as they're attributed to dialysis facilities didn't look quite right to me. It actually looked like there were far too many not-for-profit patients. Um, and like I said, back in 2000, there were more not-for-profit facilities in this country than there are in 2020 or there were in 2015. But the, the mix of for-profit, not-for-profit didn't look right to me. And that was kind of a side thing that irritated me. Um, so anyway, there's, I quickly narrowed in on literally the first 20 lines of the project. Um, and and I noticed something that was kind of strange about it. So this gets into the unique features of SAS, and I certainly won't bore your audience with all the details of this, but um, when you put two data sets together in SAS and you merge them, um, you know, you might be merging them according to some key, like a patient identification variable. Um, if it happens that there is some kind of like extraneous variable that is in both data sets, um, let's say age is in both data sets. And for whatever reason, age is written in years in one and it's in months in the other. Let's just say that as an example. SAS doesn't, what SAS will do is it will take data set one and data set two and merge them, but it will retain the values from data set two when it comes to keeping the values for that common variable. Okay, so anything that's in that variable age that's in data set one gets overwritten. Okay. And that's unique to SAS, and it's and what's further unique to SAS is that there's no error message given in a log from the software that says you've got a common variable. Software is currently overwriting it from one data set to the next. So this is happening. Now, what what happened in terms of precise problems in this little cohort construction is that there was a data set that documented the very first dialysis facility that a patient treated in. Okay, so basically their facility at dialysis initiation. And that's got a Medicare provider number, the six-digit number for the Medicare you know, certification um, is there. When they merge to the waitlisting data set, the waitlisting data set also has Medicare provider numbers in it that correspond to the certification number of the hospital that the transplant program was in, the program that actually listed the patient. And so when they do this merge, what happened essentially is that information about the very first dialysis facility, part of it was overwritten by information from this transplant waitlist data set that's got the identities of the listing hospitals. And so that data comes in, it overwrites some of this facility information. And so now you've got this sort of ambiguous mix of Medicare provider numbers in your cohort file and it represents an unclear mix of first dialysis facility as well as transplant listing hospital. And this is where that weird mix of for-profit versus not-for-profit comes into play. What are transplant programs? Almost without exception in this country, they're in hospitals that are not-for-profit. You know, tenant and community health and for-profit hospital chains don't operate transplant programs. Um, so anytime that you bring in profit status of a Medicare provider number, and you contaminated your Medicare provider number of transplant hospitals, you're going to end up grabbing a bunch of not-for-profit data. Essentially, that's what's happening. 
And that's really the uh, crux of the problem here. That single merge that contaminated the dialysis facility attribution has sort of unleashed this cascade of problems that come afterward. Ah, so really, so, so the, um, so basically you overwrote a large number of facilities. You basically lost <laughs> a bunch of data and the data that you lost was mostly data from for-profit centers in during this, during this merge. Yeah. I mean, the, the data, that you've lost is essentially as I mean this is remember you're, you're only going to overwrite things in your dialysis facility data if the patient actually was waitlisted because that's where the overwriting data is coming from so you're taking anybody who's waitlisted their dialysis facility data is being obliterated by the transplant listing program. <laughs> Un unbelievable um, yeah. and you know of this from SAS already so it's pretty oh yeah for you to pick definitely. up okay so yeah everyone. i mean it's uh it's a mistake i made when i was 22 or 23 and i was naive to the workings of SAS. um mm -hmm. you know so i learned my lesson at a young age not to screw around with merge statements in SAS. um how does one that, how does one how does one deal with that what do you how do you then, how do you merge <laughs> well, i don't know people have different ways of doing it so obviously you can use sql type coding in SAS, um and sql does generate errors in your log so that's one way to safeguard yourself uh, SQL doesn't overwrite things when you've got a common variable. Um, if you're doing sort of traditional data steps in SAS, uh, my technique is just that I'm basically obsessive about the variables that are in the two data sets that I'm merging together. So I know exactly what's in the two and I make sure that there are no common variable names other than the key that you're actually merging on. Um, and you know, that results in hundreds of extra lines of codes. So I've got every data step listed with a key statement that lists every single variable in my data set. It's uh, obsessive and overkill, but it does prevent the problem from happening. So is why, why again, why is this, um, do you need, do you need a, a doctorate in, in, <laughs> in epidemiology to be able to figure, <laughs> figure this out? Um, um, is the issue that, is the issue that, um, I don't, I don't think you need a doctorate. I think that you do need experience. Um, yeah. You know, it, the software is one thing. And, and I do think, I, I, I surmise that one of the analysts on this project who wrote a great deal of the code for the project was an experienced user of R and Python. And, and I think that that person, I, I don't know Python, I do program in R as well. But I think that that person probably made some assumptions about merging data sets and how that functionality as it appears in other languages, whether it's SQL or R or Python, um, that it behaves the same as SAS. And of course, that's a mistaken assumption. Um, so I think that that was in play, but that's a technical issue. You know, a software programmer should know that mm. or not know it. Um, you how know, as far as the, as you can say, as far as the intuition, um, you know, the transplant counts, the waitlist counts. I mean, you don't need to doctor it, but you do need to have a good sense of what population level data are. Um, yeah. And I don't, I don't know how easy that is to get other than through experience. Yeah. So when you silo, when you silo, you know, we have a weird type of siloing that happens in research. Um, I guess it's not weird, uh, but it's just it's certainly in health service and outcomes and stuff. I, one of my uh, soapbox things is that, you know, the folks that are generating a lot of research um, are somewhat removed from the clinical trenches. Um, mm -hmm. So 
uh, you know, and, and so you kind of almost need, uh, you know, you almost need some of um, a little bit of cl clinical understanding. Um, of course, you're demonstrating that mm -hmm. you don't need to be a doctor to necessarily sort this out. And certainly a lot of different nephrologists, you know, I'm sure read this paper in JAMA and kind of mm -hmm. nodded along without noticing it. So uh, anyhow, so, so, so how, yeah. can you, can you talk a little bit about how this changes um, how did this change the the initial paper? So so eventually, the yeah. researchers kind of went through this, went through the code themselves, mm -hmm. and ultimately in April of this year, uh, actually, um, you know, uh, retracted the original paper and replaced it with the paper with the new uh, data. Can you talk about um, you know how the data changed and, yeah. and how, how the well, conclusions may change? Yeah, and that timeline is an interesting thing too. I mean, to make it clear to the audience, you know, the my interactions with the author, the senior author of the paper, were over by mid-October. Um, at this point, we had agreed on, you know, the error in the code, um, you know, the fact that there's going to need to be some changes here. Um, obviously, left it to her and her team as to how to proceed. Mm. But my involvement was over, so it gives yeah. you a sense of how much time delay there is on the backside here—the invisible process of, of revising a paper, retracting a paper. I was totally in the dark, and honestly, had wondered—you know—is JAMA going to make a move? How long is it going to take? So I was as surprised as anybody, other than a um, a reporter who had suggested to me that there could be a <laughs> there could be a retraction coming. Um, so I, I maybe had a few days if I can but that was about it. Um, so yeah, the, uh, the revised numbers come out and, and they came out exactly as I expected, which is to say that the, um, the discrepancy in transplant and waitlisting outcomes between for-profit and not-for-profit facilities was attenuated. Now, if we're gonna live and die by p-values, um, it was still a significant difference um, in terms of a lower rate um, I would characterize it as depending on the outcome, whether you're talking living donor transplants, deceased donor transplants, waitlisting, um, we're talking about 15% lower rates, plus or minus, depending on the endpoint um, for for-profit versus not-for-profit. And, and that 15% you know, relative rate difference, um, that's largely in line with some of the um, existing literature. The one study I had mentioned that looked at waitlist registration a few years back, it was a much smaller study, but it was in that ballpark. I think it was the 13% lower rate. What was rate. the original difference that was seen? Uh, for oh. waitlisting, I think it was a 57% lower, if I recall the right hazard ratio, 0 0.43. I may have the wrong number, but it was in that neighborhood of being wow. 0.4 to wow. 0.45. You had, and you had gotten, when you had done this, hazard ratios of, of 0 0.8 or something like that, mm -hmm. so, which was in line with what, the, what they ultimately reported. So Yeah. And you know, in, in the um, in the interest of keeping keeping everybody sort of on target and keeping the conversation focused during the review process, you know, I said I, I don't agree necessarily with all the methodology that the study authors propose, but it's their study, right? And, and I'm not here to to critique every detail of your study. We're here to fix an error. So I restricted myself to identifying the error and then let's see what the numbers are. I would suggest to you that, you know, I had done additional analyses. And one of the things that's kind of strange about this study, in my opinion, is that it actually attributes a patient's entire transplant outcome, waitlist outcome, to the very last dialysis facility on record um, that a patient's at. And, you know, to make an analogy uh, to like a pharmacoepi study, I'd say this. Imagine you did a study and you're, you were looking at... Um, let's take ACE inhibitors, ARBs, and heart failure, hospitalization. And you followed patients for years. 
Um, some patients reach the end of follow-up and you ask at the last day administrative censoring, were they using an ACE inhibitor or an ARP? Yes or no? Okay. For everybody who got to hospitalization, you ask, were they using an ACE inhibitor or ARP on the date of admission? So that would be like back attributing the, the drug exposure to the very last day of follow-up. It's kind of weird when you say it like that, but that's exactly what they did here. And, and I think that it's, it's a study design that introduces some problems with respect to time-varying confounding potentially. I mean, keep in mind, a lot of dialysis patients shift facilities over time. And even if they stay in the same building for 14 years, that building could be bought by a different dialysis provider and the profit status could change. So, you know, the, the exposure in this variable or in the study of profit status was very crudely handled. And actually, if you do some sensitive analyses that I had done, where I changed the profit status indicator to the dialysis facility on record after three months of dialysis, as opposed to the last one on record, the associations um, actually attenuate even further. Um, compared to what you see in the retracted paper, where you're seeing hazard ratios, I was seeing hazard ratios of like 0.95 instead of 0.85. Mm. And at that point, given some of the regional differences, particularly some of the idiosyncratic places that some of these small not-for-profit chains are in, like Northern California, et cetera, I'm not sure that 0.95 is something you can really credibly hang your hat on. Ah, so fascinating. So the la so and that so that's how is is this is that how you would do it if you were looking for a difference between for profit and not for profit? You 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 wouldn't take the last place that they were at, whether they're profit or non profit. You would kind of look at them. I mean, you try to yeah. account for time spent. At, I mean, when you think about the process here, right? I, yeah. There's and it is definitely a two part thing. Um, and and it, you got to recognize this is Dallas's facility um, and all the armamentarium that comes with it. They don't control who gets listed. Okay. They don't control who's, how many organs are available. The only thing the Dallas's facility can truly do is make sure that appropriate patients receive referrals to transplant programs for waitlist right. workup. That's what they can control and they can do a bad job at it and they can be an obstacle, but many of them try to do a good job at it. Um, you can't control your geography. You can't control how many transplant hospitals are in a 50 mile radius around you. So there's a lot of stuff that's outside the control of a dialysis facility. But, you know, I would suggest that because there's so much waitlisting activity that should be happening in the first one to two years of dialysis, um, that if anything, if you're going to try and align this study with clinical reality, you should be front loading exposure and saying most of what happens in terms of transplant outcomes ought to be the responsibility, want to call it culpability or whatever. It should be the early dialysis providers, not the late ones. Mm, interesting. Um, have you, and have you, this, this isn't an interest of yours per se in terms of showing, or, or, or is it? I mean, it maybe it's kind of like a side interest of yours to kind of show that Hey, you know, and, and, and you have a, and you clearly, yeah. I mean, you, it's not that you don't have a bias. Your bias is that you work for a for-profit uh, uh, dialysis uh, uh, center. So uh, I did. So, yeah. Right. So with that, sorry, you did. Uh, so no. with that, <laughs> with that, with that bias, um, uh, you know, I guess, you know, you, you're, you're looking at it, you're looking at the data, uh, you know, a little more critically and, and, yeah, and that's fair. And I guess your feeling, your feeling is that based on what you've done again, that this is, it's unlikely that there's a significant difference um, uh, between profit and not profit. Have you, have you published any of this or? Uh, no, no, not, uh, not in this specific domain. I don't publish too much in, in transplant specifically. 
Um, I think there's a few scattered papers mm. in my past, but like I said, I'm mostly in dialysis. Um, it is definitely something that I, I think I will work on in the future. I, I want to think about how to how to write a paper or a new analysis that actually has something to offer as opposed to just, you know, tweaking a few methodological details to this study and, you know, battling over the magnitude of a hazard ratio. I don't think that that necessarily gets us anywhere. I think that, you know, the hypothesis that I raised early on about the integration of outpatient dialysis and transplant, um, I think that's something that is worthy of investigation. You know, if the, if the actual mechanism here is that when you integrate, the dialysis side and the transplant side, the DSKD, that you get better outcomes. I think that's a worthwhile message. Um, and I also think that there is something to probably be said for looking at this association between for-profit and not-for-profit within geographic strata, as opposed to doing national analyses. Um, because I think that that would provide a little bit better resolution. And I have a pretty so strong suspicion from public use files and some of the other reporting that you know, the government does analysis facilities that this for-profit, not-for-profit contrast with respect to transplant outcomes is probably not one that's homogeneous across all the states of this country. I actually think that you're going to find states where there's a big difference and you're going to find other states where there's no difference or even the converse yeah. of what was in the paper. Yeah, you know, and the issue is, is that this is so incredibly important because really policy in terms of payment policy, you know, there was a recent, uh, you know, the Trump administration uh, mm -hmm had this executive order and, and a lot of it was focused on kind of quality within dialysis, right? It's, it's this yep. idea that you don't want to just pay for pay per dialysis session or whatnot. Mm -hmm. You want to pay for outcomes. And, and one of those outcomes is getting people off of, off of dialysis and getting them a kidney transplant. Right. Right. Um, right. And so, and a lot of, you know, this is the type of research that may shape uh, payment mm -hmm. initiatives. And so, um, you know, it, it's really important to get this right. Are, are there groups that have, are, are there groups that have published things to suggest that there isn't much of a difference? There isn't much of a significant difference here or that? Yeah. Well, you know, so in my CV, you can find a paper that I was the middle author on back in like 2008 or 2009 that looked at mortality, actually death yeah. rates um, in for-profit versus not-for-profit facilities. This was using old data, you know, yeah. from around the turn of the century. Um, I believe that we had found maybe an 8% uh, lower rate of mortality in not-for-profit facilities back then. Um, so, and I know that uh, I've got a good friend who's a nephrologist, epidemiologist, and when she was at UC Davis, uh, she had done some work with looking at hospitalization and readmission rates and seeing a, um, a small association also favoring not-for-profit units. So there is quite a bit of literature that I would say, you know, it's all observational, but it consistently shows modestly better outcomes in not-for-profit units. Um, I myself am pretty torn on this one, to be honest with you. I, you see all of these studies that pile up, but the associations tend to be pretty modest in magnitude. And given some of the potential for geographic and founding, I, I definitely have my worries that we're seeing geography more than more than anything else. I know there's a temptation to think, you know, all these people are on dialysis, they're in pretty poor conditions, but guess what? Dialysis patient outcomes vary geographically too. <laughs> and, uh, and dialysis patients in California have very different hospitalization rates than ones in the Ohio River Valley. Um, so, that, mm -hmm. Do you think that's because of the patients or that's just because of the, why is that? 
Oh, I think it could be any number of things from, from the patients to the um, broader economic and environmental conditions, uh, healthcare delivery systems, et cetera. Mm. Um, I mean, when you think about things like bloodstream infections and vascular access infections, I mean, those aren't so much reflection of, of, um, of cannulation practices or antibiotic administration policies that vary from one place to the country. Um, so it's, it's, hard for me to believe that it, it can be readily explained with just case mix. I suspect that there are genuine practice patterns and then there's the socioeconomic complications um, that drive some of it, a lot of it actually. Yeah. Do, you, do you think, what, what do you think the role of bias is here? You know, we hear all the time about um, bias um, being, uh, the most important bias being financial. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly there's a big uh, component of a lot of these papers in terms of how credible they are uh, that derives from the fact that somebody can say no, no financial conflicts of interest uh, are <laughs> noted here. Now, if you yeah. wrote a paper, um, I guess, I guess now, now, now it's okay. But if you wrote a paper anytime <laughs> within the last decade or so, you would not be able to generate unconflicted research. And oh, sure. You know, if you listen to some of the, some of the, some of the, the big names or the influencers, um, they, they, would, they would automatically, before even reading your paper, discount this because, hey, this is coming from, these, mm-hmm. from some private group. What, what, are, what are your thoughts on, uh, on, on bias and its role here? Yeah, I, I find it pretty difficult to tease that out. You know, actually, um, so I mean, you know, everybody's got different perspectives on things and, and definitely... You know, I have worked in on a registry um, in a safety net hospital. I've worked in a device manufacturer that was a publicly traded company. It never did generate a profit in the 17 years of existence, <laughs> but it got close. Um, and, and, you know, so I was there. And then, you know, for the last year, I worked at, uh, you know, the largest manufacturer of Dallas's products and services around in the whole world. Um, so I'd like to say I've seen it from different facets. Um, I think that's what drives a lot of my own confusion about these murky labels like profit status and financial arrangements, because I don't see consistent patterns of behavior from one place to the next. What I do see is a, uh, what I see is a disease state that is expensive, dialysis, chronic dialysis. Um, No matter how, which way you cut it, um, you're dealing with significant amount of comorbidity and, you know, if a patient isn't dialyzing at home, you've got to deal with all of the capital expenses and the labor expenses that go with delivering in-center dialysis. Um, it's expensive and there are hospitalizations involved and there are vascular access complications and infections, et cetera. Um, so, and the government, you know, CMS is a huge player in terms of financing dialysis delivery and providing Medicare coverage. And, that's a laudable program to the extent that, you know, once upon a time in this country that didn't even exist and we had to choose who would receive dialysis or not, uh, dating back to the 1960s and 1970s. But at the same time, when you look at since Medicare started a bundled payment rate for dialysis in 2011, um, that really has ushered in a period in which the uh, per treatment reimbursement rate for outpatient dialysis has inflated very, very slowly. Uh, relative to healthcare expenditures. So, you know, I think that it's, it's difficult to, it's difficult for me to fully think through 
how some of these financial forces influence care uh, and the nature of care delivery in some of these flippant ways that people sometimes think about it, because I think it's pretty complicated. On the academic publishing side, you know, I think people do have biases. Um, they have they personal and political biases into scientific studies. And, you know, I, I tend to actually diminish the notion of people exhibiting like grant seeking and fame seeking behavior. Uh, maybe some people do that, but I tend not to put a lot of stock in that. I, I worry more about personal and political biases that allow you to confirm things that, you know, match how you vote and how you think about the world. So fascinating. It's very hard to escape escape uh, politics. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. so this, this idea that we can somehow the science stands on its own without any political front. And you know, and again, not 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 to specifically pick out JAMA, though I am picking out JAMA. Um, you know, JAMA has definitely over the last few years certainly made itself. You know, the, the part of its brand mm -hmm. is the idea that we're going to show you that. Um, a for-profit health system is bad. And mm -hmm. here, here, here's the data right. to show you that it's bad. Um, right. And, you know, and I think any, everyone would be foolish and naive to think that that isn't done uh, with a purpose. There isn't a political mm -hmm. purpose uh, to doing that. So, um, yeah. so yeah, no, Definitely. but I, I mean, it's, it's an amazing, um, the whole story is amazing. And, and thank God, uh, you know, uh, you kind of looked at it and, or, or, and had the interest and kind of, looked further and, uh, and kind of untangled the story. But the bigger issue is that there's lots and lots of these, I'm sure there's lots and lots of these stories that mm -hmm. are playing out that we just aren't aware of. <laughs> Funny I mean, you should mention that. Yeah. Um, you know, there are, uh, there are papers that are worth having a public debate about and others that I don't think are really all that worthwhile to even tangle over. Uh, even if they are published in a high-profile journal. So, uh, speak of the devil, uh, JAMA published a research letter about a month ago. And uh, I don't know if many people read it in the midst of our pandemic. I can't imagine it attracted a lot of attention. But it looked at uh, changes in uh, Medicare coverage as a percentage of all dialysis patients um, over the last 10 or 12 years. Um, and, and it looked specifically, there's, there's two figures in this little research letter, and one of them segments dialysis facilities into for-profit and not-for-profit status. And sure enough, uh, for-profit dialysis facilities appear to be avoiding Medicare-covered patients and trying to accumulate more privately commercially insured patients compared to their not-for-profit counterparts. Um, by the end of the study period 2015-16, I think this figure shows that something like 60 to 65% of people have Medicare coverage. Now, I looked at that figure and I thought, well, that's kind of weird. Um, depends how you define it. So- hey, Eric, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. Expl explain this to me again. So, sorry. Yeah. They're looking at, they're looking <laughs> at patients that are on dialysis. Uh, they're looking at dialysis patients. Mm -hmm. They're looking but at the dialysis patients and basically asking, of all dialysis patients, what percentage of them have Medicare coverage? Okay. Because Medicare right. coverage thought, pays. Yeah, I thought I thought that's what it was confusing. I thought all dialysis is once you have once you're in dialysis, you you you're you're Medicare. Is that that's not? Uh, no. So if you come in with commercial insurance, <laughs> um, you can keep that. And and there is a coordination period. Um, so basically, the way it works is that your commercial insurance will remain a primary payer for a uh, 33 month coordination period. 
And basically at the end of three years of dialysis, at that point, Medicare switches into uh, the primary position. Did and not the commercial know that. Okay. takes second. Yeah. Um, in addition, so that's existed for many years, but in addition, there has been a rotation from fee-for-service to Medicare Advantage in the Dallas population, just like in the general population. And so that piece is swelling too. So I looked at this research letter, which seems to suggest that by 2015 or 16, 17, I don't know which year it was, um, we're down to like 60% of the population as Medicare. Um, I thought, well, only if you're counting fee-for-service people. That would be true. However, the instrument that they used, which is a data piece in this USRDS registry, was something called the Annual Facility Survey. That's a survey that's done at every dialysis facility in the country at the end of the year. December 31st, you count your patients up and you say, are they Medicare or not? The rules for that single instrument say when you're counting Medicare people, you count people who are entitled. That means fee-for-service, it means Medicare Advantage, it also means MSP, Medicare is secondary pay. You put all those people in. If you count that number, you get 80%. Now, the authors of this research letter, I've already checked the data. They did everything right. The instrument itself is completely flawed. I don't know when it broke down. I have my suspicions that it broke down when the government went from paper form to electronic form for this survey and people stopped reading the instructions. But the research letter is garbage because the data itself are flawed. The authors didn't know it. The reviewers didn't notice it. I'm not going to deal with it. I've had my experience with JAMA. But, uh, you know, this stuff piles up all over the place. Wow. Wow. <laughs> uh, so, 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 so there are, you're saying they're 80% of, I'm sorry, you're, you're just much more knowledgeable about this, this stuff. No, it's, like, it's like a different language. 80% <laughs> of folks are 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 on uh, uh or, or, wait are medicare 80 percent of dallas's patients have medicare in some form or another participating in finance of care and that could be through parts a and b traditional future service it could be advantage or it could just be that medicare is a secondary payer behind somebody else but if medicare is a secondary payer so oh so i see so Medicare is a secondary payer behind somebody else so so it could be like medicaid, medicaid primary and then medicaid is a uh, medicaid primary? is never primary okay. so um, medicare with then medicaid so, yeah. Then, yeah. so commercial as a primary payer with right. medicare as a secondary payer is exactly. and, and some portion of 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 that is commercial only though i mean commercial yes, there is some of that too and, th mm -hmm. and that happens in that first 33 months if you come in as a commercial payer then you are the right. commercial payers are the primary payers so you're saying that yeah that is normally, and you kind of know this because you know this stuff, it's normally 20%. And, and uh, well, it's, it's actually less than 20% just because you do have an uninsured group. Um, right. You also have a Medicaid only share within okay. there. And then you have people who have VA and TRICARE. I see, um, so it's some small percentage, but, you, yeah. but, but, but this research letter mm -hmm. says, that, says that the folks that have Medicare paying some part of their dialysis is 60%. Yeah. Wow, yeah. that's a huge yeah. discrepancy. Uh -huh. and, 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 and just for my edification, what did, what did they conclude based on, based on that? They concluded that... Well, they, like I said, there are two figures in this research letter, and the second figure in the letter actually stratifies all the dialysis facilities into this same old for-profit versus not-for-profit. And there they show a discrepancy where the Medicare share appears to be lower in the for-profit units. Remember what the what nature dialysis is and contracting rates between dialysis providers and, and commercial insurers. Um, you know, David and Fresenius both discussed this in their investor calls. Um, 
you know, you've got a, a big chunk of your revenue that comes from commercially insured patients. Um, and so, you know, you would, this research letter would seem to support the hypothesis that there's some sort of gaming, that for-profit units are accumulating these commercially insured lives in an attempt to sort of gin up extra revenue. Um, I see. How attractive they, hypothesis, but the data yeah. itself are flawed. Yeah, yeah. How, but how, how do how did how is how do they go how how would they go about doing that? I mean, how do they how how does Fresenius and oh goodness go about trying to get commercial? Well, I'm just an epidemiologist, so I I don't have a lot of experience with all of the mechanisms that are used to actually like sort of uh, interact with patients as consumers. But that is an element. You know, you're trying to attract patients to your dialysis facility and make sure that they're happy and well taken care of. And so, you know, there can be all sorts of things that can attract right. a person to a dialysis facility right. from the well, environment yeah. to what shift of the day sure. you dialyze in, you know. Sure. But what's the, what's the, what's wrong, what's wrong with it? Or what am I missing here? Like, what, who, <laughs> who, I mean, who cares if Davida and Fresenius are better at getting yeah. commercial i mean you know again we're making this arbitrary line between profit and not-for-profit and you know from where right. i sit it's not like the, the large non-profit health systems are somehow the, the saviors of the health system you know from where mm -hmm. i sit you know they're 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 inflicting their their own pretty special brand of damage on on the system um, yeah. in a variety of different ways but 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 basically it's a letter that says that hey look they may be acquiring a bigger proportion of folks that are commercial yeah. and just implying that that's that's bad for some reason um, uh, but, but clearly just you looking at the figures, it, it seems like whatever data analysis they're doing is probably garbage because they're off by such a massive number. Just looking yeah. at the underlying I mean, rates. it's a curious choice. It, yeah. it goes back a little bit to, you know, again, understand your data. Um, right. you know, they use this sort of weird instrument called the annual facility survey, um, sitting right there in the USRDS registry as the master beneficiary file for Medicare. The, it's literally the enrollment database that says month by month, are you in Medicare or not? This, there is an unambiguous record sitting right there in that data set that mm -hmm. tells you whether you're Medicare. Now, you don't need to use this strange survey from, you know, that was designed for use a generation ago. So mm. you get, you know, researchers make a curious choice. They don't know what they're analyzing and you generate a research letter that sounds good, but is crazy. Um, wow. It's all a very avoidable error, but it keeps happening. It, it kind of sounds like giving, uh, giving the keys to like a Ferrari <laughs> to like a 12 year old and saying, <laughs> all right, go, go, uh, go drive down, you know, go drive down yeah. the Schuylkill in, in, in Philly and, uh, you know, bad things are going to happen. But yeah. All yeah. right. This has been, That's this right. has been, you know, I've taken up a lot of your time. Let's see. Is there anything else that I wanted to make sure that I, uh, that I hit um, since we have you, this has been really, really, really great. Thank you so much for doing this. And thank oh, you sure. for doing this, uh, uh, you know, uh, after, in, in the late hours after you put your kids to bed. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Well, Hey, as oh. I would, uh, yeah, go ahead. You know, I did, I did really want to ask you, um, uh, you know, home, home dialysis. Oh yeah. Um, you know, I, I did. We did this podcast with Joel Top um, about mm -hmm. the. Did you? Did, I don't know if you uh, saw, I saw that. Um, yep. uh, you know, and 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 I I came out I came out of that interview again. I don't know much about dialysis and incentives sure. and all that stuff. It's not a world I live in all the time. But I came out of that podcast with this feeling that that part of the reason we don't have more options for patients mm -hmm. in terms of home dialysis. Um, has a lot to do with with the incentives that currently exist in our system. So it almost mm -hmm. felt like we did a we did a great thing 
seemingly by saying as a society that we will not let you we 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 will we will be some backstop financially for anyone that goes on dialysis mm-hmm. so you know have insurance no insurance uninsured we will somehow as a society say you are not going to you're not going to go without any dialysis and so we introduced yeah. this system where we pay you know medicare covers dialysis regardless of how you know what age you are and whatnot um it, but i came came away from that discussion with with joel with the, with the idea that perhaps we would have a lot more dialysis options for patients if we had a different uh, uh, structure. Uh, is that your impression as well? Yeah, I, I must admit that I am, over time, I have become less enamored with the levers that Medicare can pull um, to drive modalityization in this country, um, you know, with respect to home versus in center, or with respect to either of the modalities at home. Um, I think that there's room for that, but I also think that we've got a number of examples, including a pretty adventurous uh, bundled payment system that was introduced in 2011 that was designed um, definitely with the purpose of encouraging peritoneal dialysis um, that moved the needle, um, but it moved the needle by a few percentage points. It didn't change the world. And and unfortunately, it was undercut completely for unrelated reasons in 2014 by a peritoneal dialysis fluid shortage um, that really cut the legs off the momentum. Um, that was due to manufacturing reason problems that occurred um, internationally. So that kind of slowed things down. You know, this executive order that was released last year um, quickly generated a proposed rule for a brand new payment model in the form of a giant randomized trial uh, to encourage home dialysis. Um, that is still sitting, my understanding is that that's uh, a final rule sitting at OMB awaiting review, but uh, no one knows when it might might hit the register at some point. If it does this year, next year, who knows? Um, so I don't know. I, you know, I do think this, I, and, and I've spent, you know, a lot of time thinking about home hemodialysis in particular. I think it's fair to say that I probably have a bias toward it for some clinical reasons, but um, patients are anxious and nervous and pretty scared, uh, late stage chronic kidney disease, and particularly when it's time to create a vascular access or initiate dialysis. And, you know, there are a lot, there's a lot of education that needs to happen, um, thoughtful education that needs to happen to encourage home dialysis. And, And honestly, I think a lot of it, in my opinion, starts and stops with the nephrologist. Um, it's easy to push all of this onto onto Medicare and say, oh, you guys didn't create the right incentives, you don't have the right levers, but there's only one class of of professionals in the nephrology space that writes the prescription for dialysis, and that is the physicians themselves. Um, Now, we can get into whether the financial incentives are appropriate for them, and I think that there's bona fide arguments there, misalignments with RVUs and different reimbursement rates for home versus in-center dialysis, et cetera, um, as it's paid to the physician rather than to the dialysis facility. But but I think that one of the problems that we have, and, and Joel could talk to it much better than I could, any nephrologist could, because they go through the education system, is that a lot of fellows in nephrology don't get exposure to home dialysis at all in training. They have minimal exposure to dialysis um, compared to the many pathologies of kidney disease. And so, you know, when you put them then in practice and you're trying to communicate with the patient and their family member that it's time to start dialysis, if the patient and family member perceives that you don't know what you're talking about with respect to 
all dialysis, that conversation is dead on arrival. I've been in the office and watched this conversation play out many times and it doesn't go well. Um, no patient wants to take on a home dialytic modality that their physician or nurse doesn't seem to understand. And so I think that that's a real challenge that we still have to overcome. Um, now, with respect to the home dialysis modalities, I, I will say that on a personal level, I'm frustrated by the fact that we have a lot of ambivalence about the efficacy arguments around home dialysis modalities. Now, peritoneal dialysis is a very different animal than home hemodialysis, and there's debates to be had with each of them. On the home hemo side, you know, the thing that I argue about and I've written plenty about is frequency of dialysis. Everybody in center is dialyzing three times a week. Um, there are a bunch of studies that show that that long gap that happens between the end of one week and the beginning of the next, you know, if you dialyze Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you've got Saturday and Sunday without dialysis, strange, crazy things happening with electrolytes and heart rhythms and lots of bradycardia. Uh, loop recorder studies have shown this on Sunday night, the heart is just overloaded at that point. Um, this volume issue, all of the volume and cardiac issues that go with three times a week dialysis, in my opinion, are pretty significant. And Yet, in the face of a lot of observational studies, a few randomized trials, and a ton of international experience with nocturnal dialysis and other regimens um, that are designed to increase frequency and dialysis hours per week, we still have a lot of uh, reticence and a lot of skepticism that increasing dialysis intensity does anything good for people. And yet, you know, the thing that sold me on the therapy was getting to know patients and, and listening to these stories and these transformations that people experience going from three times a week therapy to longer therapy regimens, um, whether that was daytime or overnight. And for me, seeing as believing, it goes at, as powerful as any observational study that you can construct. And that's, so, that's, that's fascinating. So you're, you're saying as a epidemiologist, math guy, um, big data yeah. man, I mean, uh, you're saying that the, the most powerful thing that's kind of shifted you and moved your priors has really been talking mm -hmm. to talk, talking to patients. Is that, is, is, yep. am I, am I saying getting that accurate? That's right. That's right. And home dialysis is hard work. You know, it's no surprise. See, the thing of it is there's always a counterpoint to this. Dialysis is still a precarious state, right? You're, you're, you're one episode away from too much fluid and your heart stops. Sudden cardiac death is the leading cause of death. So this is a challenging disease state and there's plenty of opportunities for things to go wrong. Patients discontinue home dialysis frequently and return back to the in-center environment. So if you think that you're going to design an observational study with an intention to treat principle and show some great benefit of home dialysis, you're kidding yourself. It's not, the world's too messy to show those kinds of effects. Um, I think the important thing that you need to recognize or we should aim for is how do we design studies, particularly observational ones, because randomized trials are few and far between dialysis, um, that that give opportunities to inform patients and, and nephrologists about, you know, given this clinical circumstance, you know, this is your set of comorbidities, this is your volume cardiac profile right now, what would be the best modality for you for the foreseeable future? That's not to say it's going to be the modality for the rest of your life. We have to become comfortable, I think, with the notion that changing modalities uh, periodically is perfectly normal. We call it technique failure you know, in the scientific parlance, but it's not a failure at all. It's transitions and transitions happen in life. Um, and that's okay. We should encourage smooth transitions between dialysis modalities. But again, I, it drives me crazy that, that I and, and a small cartel of people like me face such an uphill battle trying to make the argument for increasing dialysis intensity, because I think that the argument is pretty compelling. 
Um, and, and especially if you look at this from a cardiovascular perspective. Mm, fascinating. So, and to be clear, patients just feel, you think in, in your conversations, patients feel better, feel better. And, and yeah. Um, you know, so there's this one, uh, there's one outcome in dialysis that has been studied a fair bit and it's called post-dialysis recovery time. And basically it's, it comes in the form of a question. It's not a feeling thermometer, so you can do that too. But it, the question is at the end of dialysis, you ask a person, um, about how many hours was it before you felt like yourself again? And, you know, you have to remember for an incident patient, they've dialyzed for three and a half, three hours, 45 minutes, let's say. Um, they've ultra filtered multiple liters off during that period of time. They're pretty washed out um, or can be. They may have had hypertensive episodes during treatment. And so they're feeling pretty crappy, nausea, dizziness, et cetera. And for some patients, it can be a good six hours. It can be a whole overnight before they feel better again. Um, the patients who began dialyzing more frequently, especially on nocturnal schedules, talk about recovery times in minutes. It's literally disconnecting from the machine and feeling fine within 10 to 30 minutes. And that to me is one of the most striking, and it's a rapid effect. It isn't something like it takes three to six months before patients realize this. They're reporting it after one to two weeks. So... Fascinating. Fascinating. So, um, yeah. yeah, you know, we should definitely, we should definitely cycle around and do maybe uh, do another uh, conversation about this and maybe bring in sure. the clinical nephrologist too. That'd be really interesting. Yeah, that'd be great. So I have to ask it. I can, I can find a few skeptics too to yeah. counter my enthusiasm. No, no, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> um, no, this is a good conversation because I, and I'm sure this has been happening in the nephrology community for a while. Yeah. So me as a cardiac guy, you know, I kind of am vaguely aware that these conversations happen. I don't yeah. kind of, I don't kind of do much more than dip a toe in every now and then. So sure. I have to ask, since we're talking about big data and epidemiology, you know, I mean, uh-huh. there's been no time in, in, in probably the last hundred years, or I don't know, maybe no time in history, because I don't think there were this many epidemiologists around in the 1900s, <laughs> <laughs> but no time in history where there have been, there's been as much uh, um, hubbub about epidemiologists and how important they oh, are yeah. in terms of the uh, current pandemic uh, we're in. Uh, your, your thoughts on how, on, on, on how, on, on how epidemiology has been doing and yeah it's an interesting thing um you know I, i'm definitely dialysis has an infectious disease component to be sure but by no stretch of the imagination i'm an id epi guy so you know I, I sort of observe everything that's going on in the public discourse with as much wonder and amazement as as anyone else does yeah. and i'm not above making a few amateur figures with minnesota data um <laughs> so so i just play the game too um, you know, it's an interesting thing. I, I think that Epi has had an opportunity to shine. It's also, I think, been exposed for some of its flaws <laughs> in terms of reliance on uh, mathematical models and, and sometimes making predictions that don't necessarily bear out. Um, I, Epi programs, in particular doctoral Epi programs, come in a lot of different flavors around this country. Now, I went to the University of Minnesota, which, um, you know, has its, literally the division, it's called Division of Epidemiology and Community Health, and it is very much a public health-oriented program. A lot of alcohol, tobacco, obesity kinds of main public health issues. Um, clinical epi is really a side sidelight of the program. Uh, there is a cardiovascular component in the field, but there was nobody in the program that was doing nephrology or dialysis. My, my training in the field came from the hospital rather than the epi program. Um, and, you know, there are other programs in this country, you know, particularly at big institutions, you know, really high profile ones like Harvard, Boston University, et cetera, that have really strong quantitative components. 
I would suggest to you that most of my classmates from my IP program weren't great at statistical methods um, by the time they were done. You know, they were learning SAS for the first time by second year, third year of their program. Um, I came in with a biostat degree, so a little different animal because I've already got training on the quantitative stuff. Um, Epi without biostat is, in my opinion, a dangerous game. Um, and, and we've got a lot of epidemiologists who are not necessarily great at quantitative stuff. And I think that that is a problem, but that's my opinion. I've got a bias yeah. that favors the quantitative side of it. Um, you know, and, and I think that problem is magnified when you have big data sets and the need for complex modeling, especially when you're in the clinical topics and you've got to deal with really challenging confounding problems and selection bias problems. You really got to know your math chops uh, to be able to get through this stuff and unwind the data well. Um, but yeah, there's there's a lot of work to be done. It's, um, it's, it's a little bit of a loaded question, um, but you're describing for the fact that that, you know, even folks that have I don't think you're describing what you've described in the in the first hour of our conversation. You, you're not describing a problem with with math or statistics per se, right? No. You're, you're so you're describing and and what you're and what you're almost talking about is that you know um, it's it's a it's 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 an it's a it's the, the, it's a solution that doesn't come from just crunching. Mm-hmm. crunching numbers it, it's not a, it's not a quantitative problem to solve is right i mean uh, you know is, is that the same do you get the sense that that's the same thing when we're talking about models for the pandemic do you do you, do you are you comfortable i know you're not an id epidemiologist yeah. but with what you know about epidemiology and you know you've got a tremendous amount of quantitative experience do you feel like where epidemiology is at the stage as as a as a as a science to be making massive decisions on whether 300 million people should be <laughs> locked locked down and for what duration of time should they lock down what are, what what are the what's the confidence uh with which people should yeah. be you know kind of relying on that i mean is is epi in terms of doing what it's been doing um too big for its britches my, my gut feeling is yes. Um, you know, in the context of this pandemic, I, I think that, you know, there is an analog to the topic we've been discussing for this whole time, which is the quality of the data and understanding the data. And, and the challenge I think that we have with COVID-19 is that the data that we have is not so good, <laughs> you know, in terms of understanding who got yeah. tested, what percentage of uh, the selection bias that goes into the testing is by far the biggest issue. And then we've got the properties of the test that, you know, can perturb your understanding of what a positive test rate means. Um, but we have denominators all over the place that are completely unclear here. And, and I think that really complicates all of the analyses. You know, I, I mean, you can look at these models from one of two perspectives. Anybody can build a model that's akin to a simulation, right? Put together a lot of formulas with some differential equations and create a model that forecasts something. Um, or you can model observed data and then make a forecast from it. I, I it's not sometimes clear to me what we're doing uh, in the course of this pandemic. The line has blurred between those two approaches to such a degree that I feel like, you know, with the IHME model in its early stages, it was taking the first seven days or the first 10 days of the epidemic playing out in a state in this country and then making a projection for six months. I mean, that's sort of like doing a linear regression uh, over, well, you know, literally make the same analogy over six months, but you only have observed data for the first 10 days. I mean, I, 
So, but so why it's, isn't it's why isn't that uncertainty impregnated into what they're saying? I mean, I mean, I mean, I have when I have conversations mm-hmm. with patients about um, about what what to do in terms of like you know like I, I had a conversation today with with a with a, with a fam with a family. Um, uh, I should be careful here. Um, you know, it, 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 it involves um, a patient uh, uh, with cardiac ar- who had a cardiac arrest who survived the mm-hmm. cardiac arrest, and and it, it's unclear what exactly happened. Um, I, mm-hmm. I don't have you know the patient didn't have a device implanted for me to know what the what the initial rhythm was. You yeah. know, EMS got there. There were there were shocks administered. We don't exactly know what the heck happened initially. And and you know I I'm I I I'm very frank with 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 the family saying like you know I'm not exactly sure what to do here but we're going to try to make we're, I'm trying to make a decision based on X Y and Z but mm-hmm. you know there's a lot of uncertainty here and and I feel like I do I try to do that a lot because because there is so much uncertainty impregnated into so many of the decisions mm-hmm. we make. Um, but and and that that's partly where I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not you know I, you know quanti- I haven't done you know I don't have a quantitative background certainly like 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 many many epi folks like you do or, or other folks sure. do. But but I, I this intuitive sense from doing medicine that there's got to be a ton of uncertainty here and and here it's it feels like the idea is is to minimize the amount of uncertainty there is mm-hmm. in a lot of the modeling that happens so we can get people to buy in. And it's yeah. like the it's like the exact opposite of what I try to do most of the time. I'm not mm-hmm. trying to just tell the the patient and the family in front of me that this is what this this is exactly what you must do because that's what the data points to. What I'm trying to say is, is that you know this is this is this is very uncertain. There are different paths that we that we that we can take depending mm-hmm. on depending on what your risk threshold are and understanding that each one of these things that we do we can do more aggressive things. But the more yeah. aggressive things that we do, they're, they're higher risk to the patient. Um, and, sure. and so, you know, how do we want to, how do we want to, you know, this, this, is, this is what I need your help in terms of telling me what your threshold for risk is, et cetera. But understand if we do this, you know, if we take a conservative approach, you know, there is the chance that two, three years from now, you come back with, with worse disease, blah, blah, blah. If mm-hmm. we take an aggressive approach, there's less of a chance you may come back later on. But we buy an upfront risk of X, Y, and Z. You know? So it's this constant, very difficult conversation we have about these trade-offs that folks are making. And it's very rare that we have these perfect, perfect <laughs> times. You know, sometimes we have perfect information, really. Yeah. I mean, patient has an yeah. implanted device. Just I keep going back to this because yeah. implanted device, you see a cardiac arrhythmia happen right away. And my God, like, okay, there's, I mean, this is, you know, there, there's, there's, there's no doubt about what you're telling people. Sure. But a lot of times, you know, their decisions are not that clear because we don't have perfect information. And it really feels that 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 uncertainty conversation isn't isn't happening. Is that well, yeah, why is I that? agree with that? I mean, I, I, I can more facilely discuss this in the context of the sort of work I do. But, you know, you you routinely see these observational studies. I propagate them too. Um, you write them up. Um, you wrote you did a model. You did a few sensitivity analyses. Um, things look like they're pretty similar, but then you got this limitations paragraph lurking in the discussion and it talks about, oh, I got some unmeasured confounders and there's some misclassification bias, uh, information error, various sources, but you don't attempt to quantify any of it. Now, there have been people in the epi field who have encouraged that there be more of this uncertainty analysis that's done 
but it simply hasn't ever reached the clinical journals. And so we have mollified ourselves into being okay with 95% confidence intervals. We stop at stochastic error. And, and I have the suspicion that part of the reason why we stop there is because if we also layered on all of the information error, the potential uncertainty that comes from that, it would obliterate uh, every confidence interval under the sun. And you'd be left with observational studies that have relative rates that have true uncertainty interval endpoints to go from 0.5 up to 5. And it would be routine. And people would say, this is ridiculous. <laughs> so there is a certain degree of me that's like, well, we're, we're trying to comfort ourselves by sort of packaging some of these problems in text rather than numbers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well said, well said. All right, Eric, I have taken up way too much of your time. I really appreciate right. it. It was really a fascinating, sure. fascinating conversation. We usually go for an hour, but this was just uh, too, too oh, good. And you have, you have too much uh, information that we can, we can plumb. So it was really great. All right, let me, uh, so thank, thanks again. And uh, we shall, uh, we shall chat, uh, we shall chat soon. All right. All right. Oh, oh, before have I go, I, yes. before, before I go, I, I should, tell me, uh, what's your handle on, on Twitter? Uh, oh, it's uh, Eric, E-R-I-C underscore wine handle, W-E-I-N-H-A-N-D-L. Excellent. All right. Thanks again, and we will see you on Twitter. Thanks for listening to the Akkad and Coca Report. Subscribe for free on iTunes or Stitcher at akkadandcoca.com, where you'll find detailed show notes, our blog, and more. akkadandcoca.com.